Good morning. I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. Sovereignty was never ceded. I would also like to pay my respects to the elders, both past and present, of the Kulin Nation and extend that respect to any Indigenous listeners who are tuning in today. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. How are we today? Um, very well, how are you? I'm going very well, thank you. Um, so my name is Jacob. And I'm Fung, and you're listening to Monday Breakfast. Yes, and today is our Radiothon Day. So we're going to read out some numbers uh, that you can call in or text and make a pledge to support 3CR Community Radio. So our, our first number is the community number, so 9419 8377. So if you dial that one up today and just make a pledge to donate, that would be fantastic. Alternatively, you can text us on 0488-809-855. Yeah, so just some things that if you're, if you're um, thinking about donating and you're wondering where the money is going, um, $35 will pay for a new turntable stylus which is very cool. Um, $200 allows us to podcast your favourite show so you can listen back any time. Uh, $50 pays for one month's supply of coffee to keep our graveyard shift volunteers going, which is very important. Um, so, yeah, um, if you'd like to donate, please text or call today. Absolutely. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters, where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. Thanks, Victoria. Your hard work means restrictions in metropolitan Melbourne are easing. To stay safe, remember, always check in when you're out. No visitors to your home. Limit outdoor gatherings to 10 people. Stay within 25 kilometres of home unless it's for work, study, care or caregiving or getting vaccinated. Wear a fitted face mask indoors and outdoors. Get vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. And if you experience any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. 
Okay, first up we're going to play a song called Dig by Chasing Ghosts. surface now dig 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 until your nails bleed until you know what you're calling your home you dig dig you've dug yourself a hole now can you feel it and build upon our bones see the black flag fly Flying above, see blood and sand. That's what we're standing on. And someone's lying, but what have we done? We're more than just holding on. So dig, dig until the scrub surrenders. Dig, dig. it through the winter if we'll burn your crops black in their rows see a black flag fly flying above see blood and sand that's what we're standing on and someone's lying but what have we done we're more
Okay, that was Dig by Chasing Ghosts, and very emblematic of today's Radiothon theme. So please, dig deep if you can, and call our number on 94198377. That's 94198377. Yes, Jacob, I think that was a very good choice, the first song of the day. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, So as we know, 3CR Breakfast is a part of an amazing legacy of current affairs programming. One person in particular is Jan Bartlett, and Jan presents Tuesday Home Time and has been bringing listeners local, national and international news and opinions over many years. We are big fans of the show, and an issue that continues is the situation in Palestine. On Wednesday the 19th of May, Free Palestine Melbourne presented an online NAFPA forum. Returning to Palestine, liberated and discussion supporting Save Sheikh Jarrah. On the program today we feature the four panellists, Professor Tony Birch, Indigenous author and writer, Dr Sari Sananari, Palestinian artist and cultural historian, Nasa Mashni, Vice President of Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, and Dr Jody Silverstein, Jewish historian, based in Melbourne and member of the Australian Jewish Democratic Society. We begin with Dr Tony Birch. I do want to thank um, Tasman for organising this. We've had associations in the past, particularly with the Black Palestinian Solidarity Conference that we had two years ago, and it was wonderful not only to meet her, but to meet other people as well. What I want to talk about, I do want to talk about some comparative issues of shared history or similar histories and resistance, but I need to start today by, by saying two other things. And firstly, for me, this is, a, this is about our relationships, this is about our friendships, and this is about our shared sense of solidarity. So Aboriginal people in Australia in the last 50 years of activism have um, not only supported the Palestinian cause, we've had great support from Palestinian people about our own struggle. And those relationships that have been forged over those decades are very enriching for all of us. And I would state that they have established really long-term, not only political alliances, but more importantly, really dear friendships. And that is important to me because in recent years, I've got to know um, a lot more Palestinian people than I had in the past. And I find those relationships absolutely vital to who I am and as an Aboriginal person and as a sovereign Aboriginal person I take the notion that um, Palestinian people living on Aboriginal land need to be supported not only in their struggle abroad but their sense of exile or how they feel about living in a country like Australia. It's also very important for me to say that um, I want to express some my, my sadness, my support for the community here in Australia, what you're going through at the moment in relationship to the destruction of your country, in relationship to the impact on your loved ones, your community, your nation. It, I'm sure it is deeply traumatic. I'm sure that it is um, deeply distressing. And it's important that I let you know that um, not only myself, but all of my friends in the Aboriginal community who I associate with, who I'm a, a political ally with and friends with, we are very upset about what has happened and we want you to know. And this I, I, I would express to the, every Palestinian person in the audience tonight, whether it be here in Melbourne, across Australia, 
anywhere across the globe and certainly for people in your homeland that um, we are very sad about what has happened and we, we, we can guarantee you that our support for you will, will, will not waver and our support for you will, will always be there. You can always rely on us because we know um, that we have always been able to rely on you. So we take that friendship and relationship very, very seriously. The other issue that I'm a bit hesitant to discuss or to think about is there are very important comparative histories, but I just think I want to focus on what's happened in the last um, few weeks in Palestine. I want to think specifically about those events. I'm not trying in any way to dismiss the terrible violence that impacts on Aboriginal people in Australia today, particularly in relationship to incarceration, but not only incarceration, but what is happening at the moment in Palestine is particularly graphic, particularly distressing. So my sense is that I want to make sure that my attention is drawn toward supporting you. Having said that, I, I, I want to say something else about, I suppose, the relationships of what we might call um, settler colonial violence, its impact on our nations and on our countries, and what we need to do for each other in the long term to, to make sure that that support is tangible, that it is concrete. So I started by saying that I regard myself as a sovereign person. And what I mean by that is the same way I think that many Palestinians think we don't need our sovereignty granted to us by a government. In other words, we don't want our sovereignty granted to us by a foreign occupier or a colonial power or an invader. So when people talk about Aboriginal sovereignty in Australia, it's the same way it's expressed by people in Palestine. We're not seeking sovereignty from the settler occupier. We must express sovereignty within ourselves intellectually, politically and emotionally. And the reason I say that here and its relevance to our Palestinian friends is our sovereignty in Australia comes with really, really important responsibilities. So I want to say to people again that for Palestinians living in Australia, living in exile, or as Tasman talked about, not being able to even step foot in their own country, we take responsibility for you while you are here. We take responsibility to care for you while you are here, and we take responsibility to support you while you are here and while you continue to struggle for your homeland. I do, though, want, now want to talk about some comparative issues, and I think that, yeah, we can think about the terrible destruction of physical violence, you know, through the bullet, through the bomb, through attacks on people, through imprisonment, through incarceration. But what we know that's occurred alongside that, and this has been stated by other people, is that the whole idea of the violence of clearance. So one of the issues that is really, to me, strong in the sense of thinking comparatively about the destruction of Indigenous land, both in Palestine and Australia, is the bulldozer. So you know, we've seen the shock and destruction of your homes in Palestine and what we see in Australia is often the destruction of our home and um, homelands because of mining, because of development, um, because of some need to so-called economically improve land, but that, of course, is a, a means of destroying land and destroying, as we would say, in Australia country. And I think that what is tellingly rel relative here. And this is really important, I think, in relationship to Nakba and what has happened in recent weeks is that both in Australia and in, in Palestine and in Jerusalem in particular, is that um, what happened in the last few weeks in, with Nakba, the refusal to allow people to commemorate in ways that they wanted to, is that what is happening there is a refusal to accept truth. 
So what colonial authorities have done traditionally in both countries is a means of trying to silence people, to try and silence people from being active, to try and silence people, as we saw in that really important film that introduced us here tonight, for people wanting to be truth tellers, people seeking to tell the truth about the destructive impact on colonialism in their society. And this is very similar in Australia as it is in Palestine, and it has followed a very similar path for many, many years now. Now, because of that, as we saw in this film, as we see in activism, as we see in the um, protests in the street, as we see in gatherings like tonight, as we see in relationship to literature, so I've been introducing to great Palestinian writers in recent years, we have an absolute responsibility to be engaged in a form of truth-telling. So it's very important for all of us that we not only get the so-called message out, but we're able to counter these stories of refusal and denial by informing people about the truth of what has happened in both our countries. And I've been very fortunate, as I said, because of my associations with the Palestinian community, to get a much greater and in-depth understanding of those histories and stories that I would otherwise not have access to because of the media. And I also know that this puts a lot of responsibility and um, I think sometimes stress on people. So I would say to our Palestinian friends, like with our Aboriginal friends, because we need to share the load. We need to support each other and share the load of sharing those stories so we don't get burnt out and destroyed by the activism we're involved in. And the other thing I think it's relative to this and just sum up with a couple of points is that the other issue, of course, is the way that memory has become a, a strategy, a political device, a, a fiction. And I think in relationship to, to Palestine, again, I think when I'm reading some of the reports coming out, when I get access to some of the histories of, say, the history of the, the origins of Nakba, is what the Israeli government attempts to do, whether it be to remove people from houses, to remove people from community, to bulldoze communities, to do terrible violence as is being enacted now. It's not only to destroy physical places, not only to destroy people, but it is to destroy the legitimacy of the memory of what has actually has happened in this country so that the fiction that is told that overlays this cleared land, that overlays the houses that people have been thrown out of, it creates a, a, a means of um, silencing the past. So I think we also have a shared responsibility to make sure that those stories of the past are shared, disseminated, and, and we get them out there. I suppose the last thing I want to say, and it, it goes back to Gassan's introduction in some way, and that is the corruption of the way people talk about violence, the way people talk about defending themselves, and certainly the way people talk about human rights. I think what is, for me, one of the most, what angers me so much at the moment, and I shouldn't be surprised because I've seen this all my life, is the selective support of human rights, which of course renders any support of human rights obsolete. And we know just, for instance, in the US that we know during the election last year that um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, it was very important for them to give a nod to the Black Lives Matter movement because they were reliant on turning out millions and millions of African-American voters, which they were, were able to do, or certainly increase the vote amongst African-American voters. When we hear not only the silence in relationship to what's happening in Palestine, but more than that proactive support of Israel, it not only is disgraceful in the way that the human rights of Palestinian people are ignored by 
someone like the US powers, it's important to say that any claims they make to support of human rights in relationship to any country, any ally, I think should be disregarded because you cannot, you cannot support the human rights of, of one person or one group of people and deny them to another. And we need to also make sure we get that story out there. So I just want to say in conclusion that it is true, as, as Tasmin talked about, there are very strong comparative histories between Aboriginal people in Australia and Palestinians, um, very strong. And I just want to say that we need to make sure that we continue to support you um, at this moment. And we do so knowing that we always can rely on you for support when we need it. I don't think I've been to an Invasion Day rally where I haven't seen a really strong Palestinian contingent and it means so much to us and we will reciprocate in whatever way we can. So thank you very much for inviting me tonight. Historian and writer Dr Tony Birch there speaking as part of the Free Free Palestine Melbourne's Nakba event in May. Now the situation in Palestine is still dire but I don't think that the news cycle really reports the full story. And I think what's good about programs like this on 3CR is that it actively challenges this news cycle and discusses the implications of the conflict on the people. And 3CR volunteers bring you constant community news and proactive discussions from activists and speakers, such as the Nakba event Tony was speaking from, as well as the Black Palestine Solidarity Conference that Tony referred to. Thanks to Jan from Tuesday Home Time for the recording. Uh, and now, if you want to continue to support programs such as Tuesday Home Time on 3CR, you can call us up on 94198377 and pledge a donation. And we actually have a very special caller coming in today who just happens to be my mum. So I'm just going to say, hello. Hey, mum. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Jacob? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. How's your morning good. been? Not too bad, thanks. I've um, <laughs> got up nice and early. It's freezing here in Newcastle, and Dad's gone off for his usual early morning swim to Nobby's. Oh, fabulous. Even though it's freezing cold, just <laughs> say hello, by the way. And, of course, we're your number one fan. You're doing a good job down there. <laughs> thanks, Mum. Um, so, Mum, how much do you want to pledge to donate to 3CR today? Well, I hear that $35. Does it get you a new turnstile? Did I hear that correctly before? Yeah, yeah, it does. 35 is awesome. Thanks, Mum. No worries. Okay. Got my credit card handy. <laughs> awesome. All right, well, enjoy the rest of your day, Mum. Thanks for calling up. You too. See you later, guys. Bye. Bye. Okay, so now it is time for a song. Yes, so um, this song that we're about to play is called Yere Faga um, by Umu Sangare, who is a uh, Grammy Award-winning Malian Wasulu musician. And the song features Tony Allen, who was a Nigerian drummer, composer and songwriter and was the drummer and musical director of Fela Kuti's band Africa 70 from 1968 to 1979. Um, this is a nature boy flacco version of the song, um, but hopefully it will get you pumped for um, Monday morning. <laughs> Oh, 
Okay, so that was Yere Faga um, by Umu Sangare. Three CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. As much as we are lied to that what is happening in Palestine is complicated, there is nothing complicated about it. Israel maintains a regime of apartheid, ethnic cleansing and occupation. None of these concepts are new. They have all existed in some form throughout history. This nation is founded on settler colonialism. Drawing parallels between our struggles doesn't only shed light on the commonality of different social justice issues, but it also shows us that as Palestinians, our freedom and liberation is so inherently intertwined with the freedom and liberation of so many others around the world. 3CR Radio Time, community-powered radio. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Okay, you're back with us on 3CR Community Radio. You're listening to Monday Breakfast with me, Fung, and Jacob. Hello. Um, just a reminder, we are uh, in our Radiothon this week, so please, if you'd like to donate, you can call us on 03-9419-8377. And again, that was 03 Absolutely. So 3CR is really dependent on your donations to keep running. It actually costs us about $100 for one hour of airing. So please donate if you can. Yes, I hope you were inspired by Jacob's Jacob's mum coming on air before. Love you, (laughs) mum. Very generous. Um, So please show your support for 3CR. Now, another issue that is... Uh, causing concern to many communities is the planned redevelopment of the War Memorial in Canberra. Well, the whole project is getting rid of Anzac Hall, which is an award-winning piece of architecture, only 20 20 or less years old. Demolishing that is hugely wasteful, destructive, um, and a lot of other things one could say about it, but demolishing that. But then um, in its place where you've got a big hole in the landscape. New structures, vastly increased amount of floor space, uh, very very grandiose sort of architecture, space for a lot of what are called large technology objects, you know, pieces of military machinery, fighter jets, bits of submarine tanks, all that sort of thing, which don't fit in the War Memorial at Campbell at the moment. They could go in one of the annexes, which is a which is a good alternate solution, but that's um, another matter which I could say more about. So putting a big new piece of architecture in place of Anzac Hall, expanding the parade ground out the front of the memorial, getting rid of a lot of trees that are, that are in the way of either of a bigger parade ground or of the construction work itself, 
and a few other bits and pieces. But it's a huge amount of extra floor space that's uh, that's being planned for the, for the memorial. And importantly, the purposes to which that floor space will be put seems to be a lot of it for displaying of military machinery, which is not what a war memorial should be about. Those pieces should be in a museum and and as mentioned in the Canberra suburb of Mitchell, the War Memorial has quite a big annex where all of these excess large technology objects could go, could be uh, stored, preserved and exhibited there, but the memorial has chosen not to do that. So that's why a lot of people are talking about this, including our organisation, Medical Association for Prevention of War, as making the War Memorial into a military theme park you know, it's not it's not in the nature of commemorating the dead um, when you're just surrounded by a whole lot of military machinery. The important questions, which should be uh, should be uh, on display and asked and addressed in the memorial about why we go to wars, what are the contexts of each of our wars, how did they start, how might they have been prevented. All of these questions are hugely important and important. If we're going to respect our war debt also, um, we should really be looking at, well, you know, how could these lives have been preserved? But those questions, we understand, are not going to get much of a look in. We don't know for certain at the moment, but we understand that a lot of the space will be simply for military machinery. So do we see the hands of the weapons manufacturers in the background to this development? Well, we don't have any proof of that we we can't be certain but we do know that the weapons makers give funding to the war memorial which is a huge conflict of interest for them they make money huge amounts of money when we go to war they rely on countries being at war and for them to be represented named at a war memorial honorably named is uh, is is very very bad um, it's a conflict of interest and just shouldn't happen so the extent of any to which they've been involved in this redevelopment proposal, who knows, that might might come out one day, but we, we don't know. Certainly we could say that they will benefit from the displays of the sort that I've mentioned. Uh, you know, when you put the focus onto how Australia fights and the machinery that we need when we go to war, if that's where the focus is, then yes, of course, the weapons makers are going to, going to profit from that because it's uh, it's glamorising and glorifying what they do. And what they do doesn't deserve to be glamorised or glorified. So that was Sue Wareham from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War there. Sue spoke with Jan Bartlett from the Tuesday Home Time program here at 3CR about the sham process involved in the redevelopment of the War Memorial in Canberra. There is huge community resistance to this, so stay tuned to 3CR for updates. This program is just one of the many current affairs programs bringing you grassroots current affairs day in and day out here on 3CR. And if you'd like to listen back to uh, more episodes of Home Time Tuesday, you can visit the website at www.3cr.org.au slash hometime Tuesday. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our radiothon. 
We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever and we need your support to power community radio. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. Marissa from Doon Time caught up with Alison and Desley from Grandmothers Against Removals recently. I'm Marissa from 3CR Community Radio and we do a lot of work on this show, um, in particular talking to Aboriginal women um, and about stolen generation, amongst lots of other things. So I'm wondering if you two aunties, or grandmothers I should say, can start off by introducing yourselves and what land you're from. Who, who, who wants to go first? Yes, okay. I'm Alison Fuller from Western Australia. Um, my tribes are Wamajiri, Unaba, Balgu and Noongar. So I've got family all up and down Western Australia and uh, I'm... Well, one of the founders of GMAR Victoria and the president of GMAR Victoria. Okay. Yep, that's how it is. And I'm Desley from um, Gunai Bidwell Woman down here in Gippsland. And, um, yeah, been part of GMAR. I'm not a grandmother yet, so that time will come. <laughs> that will. Your we'll turn. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So just a privilege to be part of GMAR and with um, such strong women as Alison and... Um, and Rio, Alice, and the rest of the, the crew across the state. So, can you tell us how, what happened? How did um, this group happen, and what are some of the things that, are, that have gone on? Right. Well, in 2018, in the middle of 2018, uh, when Lydia Thorpe was uh, an MP. Um, she invited us to come and launch the group from the stairs of Parliament House in Victoria. And um, since then, we've been working with anyone that requests help in regards to stopping their children being stolen or uh, getting care and custody of their family members. And, yeah... So I think to take that, to, you know, to add to that, Al, um, GMAR, Grandmothers Against Removal, was a movement that was starting across the country and and there were some um, amazing, uh, a lot of elders in particular who marched in Canberra and so it's a response from each state picking it up and, and then um, Rio and Alison have, you know, set up and, and helped support women like myself to, to come on board and to do things out in our communities, um, you know, and, and also that it's about it's about keeping people accountable. You, we've got a lot of services that are supposed to be advocating for our families, um, but what we're seeing daily is the DHS 
and various um, Aboriginal organisations that are there and services that are being paid to help keep children home, in safe homes with their families, that they are breaking protocol and policies, that they're not adhering to the Bringing Home Report, which states that our kids need to stay within their families and kinship systems. And often if people in those organisations aren't working on the ground, they don't know who these extended family members are. You know, they don't, yeah. they don't know how to explore that properly. And, and um, 10% of our kids, 12,000, over 12,000 kids will be living in, staying in out-of-care home tonight in Victoria, Aboriginal children. And, um, and over a third of those children will be, will not be with family or kin. Mm. And, and that's what we're trying to make sure that our children are staying within, you know, their family or kinship systems in safe homes and, um, that the, the department adhering to the policies and protocols that dictate, you know, what they have to do daily. And we're finding gaps. And I guess that's what it is that when families and mothers and, and grandmothers are frustrated by the system, finding it hard to navigate, um, finding obstacles that we come in and, and just see where those gaps are. And, and having dynamic women like Alison and Rio, um, who are fearless, um, make things happen. I say that we have a 100% success rate because every case that we're asked to be involved in, we make some positive impact. And does that mean that the, some of the kids get to stay home? Well, that's it. If, if, and if, if not with the, you know, parents, then what is, why isn't that home a safe home? Let's look at that. The, the yeah. options that, uh, to, um, that DHS and child protection are always, um, criminalising in my yeah. view. Whether it's, we're going to criminalise the partner, that'll be first off the rank. IVO's there, breaking up families rather than dealing with what's going on in the home. Why are these people acting? Is there trauma involved? You know, are there other services that we need to put in place, mental health or substance abuse, etc. And um, and making sure that, you know, if not, that they're with still close family members. And oftentimes when it's time to reunify the family or giving the parents access to the children, that's where, you know, the bottom drops out as well. Services aren't facilitating this. And that's a great, you know, this is a vital thing that needs to happen in order for children to return to their homes. I actually find it really disgusting how the history, Aboriginal history is not acknowledged and the mission days are not acknowledged. And looking at the fact that Aboriginal, Aboriginal kids have been taken away from their families since 1788, and in yep. some ways, nothing's changed. Would, was it fair to say? Absolutely. We're still constantly being criminalised. If you look at a lot of the mothers that we're, we're talking with, they're from intergenerational trauma. They've had, that they've been grown up in institutions, or their parents have been taken away, or their grandparents. And so, when they're dealing with this trauma, well, we've got children, and look, I'm 50. I'm still bringing up kids. Um, and I'm still having to face that trauma every day. And, you know, a lot of our mums and parents are being criminalised for, you know, the, the um, factors that come, the, the mental health issues or the substance abuse, abuse issues, homeless, homelessness, etc. They are then being criminalised. And I'm a perfect example. When I then was 11 years old, 
dealing with... I then became criminalised as well. So, you know, it goes on and on and there's got to be better answers and we say that the, those answers are from, will come from the community and the families. I'm really glad that that all of you are involved there. And it's so good that Lydia was able to get this group launched as well. We've interviewed her quite a few times on this show too. Right. Yeah. Oh, she's an absolute gem and, and, and a warrior. We're so proud to call her our own. And you two are warriors too. Well, I have to say with Alison, you know, I mean, we're living and breathing it and walking and talking it in that we often live through it ourselves. Uh, some of our best workers are because we've, we've been through, we've had to fight CP in the past, but that's also something they can use, try to use against us because that, that's what they, that's their whole MO. Their modus operandi is about defaming, um, you know, uh, mothers. And, and families and, and to then come up against them, in, you know, and advocating for other um, mothers now. And they will still try and bring up the past and defame us. Hey, Alison, would you like that good woman down? No. The Bringing Them Home report, why didn't anyone learn from that report? Because it sets out quite a few things, doesn't it? Except it set up a lot of budgets, I know that. Yeah. Well, I'm, Still waiting to see the outcomes, Alison. What are you? What, what's your thoughts on the multiple numbers of services that are supposed to be there out there? Well, I think it's all set up by government to make it look like they care and to make it look like they're actively doing something against um, this problem, which they've created. Um, but in reality, they had no intention of uh, easing up, or, and it can be seen in the actions because since the report, the rate of children being stolen has increased. Yeah. And the unaccountability, that's what I find shocking. I mean, we've all been, um, you know, dealing with a case last week is a classic example that um, children were taken off a mother, and we don't see any cause, and we're asking them. And it's, it's about keeping the bastards honest. I mean, that's honestly what we do daily, AL. Yes. So is, uh, I hope the group's acknowledge, your group's acknowledged by DHS. I bet it's not. No, it is. Is it's it? recognised by DHS, yes. And in oh, some I'm shocked. Cases, like uh, Rio's, and they call her Auntie Rio's. She's got oh, the good. Lawyers, the judges, the uh, DHS workers. Fantastic. Um, calling her Auntie and recognising um, her voice in the court. Fantastic. And, and that's how it should be. And we want to see that out in the regions and that, a, you know, and the recognition that Rio has been building and yourself, Al, um, has, has been amazing and commendable. Um, but we we do want GMA recognised all over. It's still that little bit like, you know, they're not happy to see us, put it that way. <laughs> but I'm really, I feel honoured that that I'm I'm speaking to the two of you really because it's 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 so important, isn't it, to have a group that's recognised there because I don't think there's enough unity in regards to um, Aboriginal people working with the system because it's all about fighting racism, isn't it, and unconscious bias. Yes. It's built into their policies. 
The policy is to divide us, exactly. So, you know, that's the, the, you're talking about unity. I mean, even when I look in, um, in my area, you know, there's three or four services that are being funded um, to help with, you know, um, to fulfil policies, etc. But I see division, and, and if we don't have people on the ground in communities, um, they don't know how to deal with division, yeah? That's right. And, and, and they'll actually start tailoring services for the division rather than having true elders and minded people on the ground who know families, who know the dynamics of community and can act as real mediators and counsellors. Yes. And that's what I'll say GMAR is being, especially with, I mean, a treasure trove of elders and experience. Amazing to be in the room with, um, look, we've had the meeting recently, Alison. I mean, what a privilege to be in the room with, you know. I'm so happy. I'm happy that this is happening. Now, if there are any, any mothers listening or any, anyone listening here, how can they get in touch with you? We have a page on Facebook, uh, Grandmothers Against Removal Victoria. They can uh, leave messages there. Yep. Um, to either ask for help or to volunteer help. And we respond pretty quickly. Yes. Fantastic. And there's people all, all around Victoria. Just get, you know, get onto that website um, and uh, uh, just ask for help and somebody will, will, um, will tag each other, especially if you let us know what area you're in. And hopefully around the communities, GMAR starting, you know, to get known. If there is anybody who would love to come and volunteer with us, don't feel inadequate or ill-equipped. All you need is that heart, you know, that, that, um, understanding that struggle and, and stand by, you know, families in your community. And if anybody wants to help with contribution, you know, we're often rehousing people, helping um, facilitate access. Um, and and we do need help. We don't get any government funding. We don't want to, you know, be pulled by anybody's strings. So we appreciate any and, and any support our way. You know, there are just yes. a, a few groups. Um, a mother, grandmothers Against Removal, how can we, what, what, do we, what do people Google if they need to get in touch with you too? Grandmothers Against Removal. Okay. Oh, yeah, yep. it'll, it'll, it'll come up anyway. And we've got some dynamic young um, women on board recently too who are helping us more get, you know, with the social media and um, web pages and contacts. So, you know, what's this space? Fantastic. Yeah. And we all know that um, Aboriginal women are over-incarcerated compared to non-Aboriginal women as well. So it, you may get some calls um, or emails from from women that have been in prison. Well, I just want to shout out to any of the sisters listening. Um, love you, stay strong and stay safe. And, um, and your babies, you're a mother no matter where you are. And if you need us, reach out. Thank you so much for coming onto the program. I've got another interview coming up soon, but is there any, any final things you want to say? Thank you for having us. Mm-hmm. Shout out to all the mob, Melbourne Blacks. Melbourne Blacks, yeah. For yeah. sure. All right, later. Yeah, thanks. Stay cool, kind of thanks yeah. so much. And thank goodness they've gotten rid of the Aboriginal Protection Board anyway. That's something. Well, yeah, it's a rose by any other name, but anyhow. Yeah, well, that's right. Thanks a lot. (laughs) 
Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that was um, Alison and Desley, Grandmothers Against Removal, talking about the Bringing the Home Report and looking at how they, they're, they're helping um, children in care. And we talked a lot about the stolen generation. Marissa Spazzaro there from Doing Time with Alison and Desley from Grandmothers Against Removals. Grassroots groups like GMAR have fought really hard against the ongoing systematic racism that has seen pretty much another stolen generation. And as Alison says, the solutions will come from community and family, not from endless reports and unmet recommendations. And you can catch Doing Time on 3CR Mondays at 4 p.m., um, and major shout out to Alison and Desley for all the fantastic work that they do. Um, so I hope everyone's enjoying their day off on Queen Lizzie's birthday. <laughs> uh, Fong and I were just having a chat about the Queen's holiday birthday and, and they actually award. Yeah, um, I mean, on the front page of The Age today, there's a story, uh, uh, you know, with some of the names. Uh, of people who have been awarded the Order of Australia, um, including controversial, a controversial figure in politics, Peter Credlin. Yeah, so for those that don't know, uh, Peter Credlin is currently a news presenter at Sky News, but she was also a top advisor of Tony Abbott mm. when, when he was Prime Minister, who, as we know, orchestrated some very problematic policies like the Stop the Boats uh, campaign. Um, and as we know, the, the Order of Australia is chosen from advice from the Prime Minister and, and the group of community representatives. And I just think it's, it's very problematic. Yeah, I mean, um, we were talking about this off air just before. Um, it's, you know, the, the, just the idea of having Queen's birthday honours, um, you know, all of, all of this operating on stolen land, it just, it doesn't make any sense and it upholds, um, you know, this racist colonial system that we're um, living in. Um, and so what does it actually, what is it supposed to celebrate? Um, or who is this for, really? Absolutely. Is this for the community? Um, would people, uh, you know, vote for or choose to honour Peter Credlin if they had the choice? I... I don't think so. Yeah, I, I don't know. She's, she's said some very, very troubling things, um, in her times. I was just reading last year, she equated the Victoria COVID lockdowns to, to SAS war crimes. Mm. Um, and she's also said some horrible things about the South Sudanese community as, as not assimilating into Australian culture because they allegedly weren't following government restrictions. But I think it just goes to show these awards they just they don't celebrate the people that they should mm. and the very concept as you said of of having a, a award ceremony on the queen's birthday on stolen aboriginal land it's just anyway it blows my mind mine too yes um however today in brighter news we are raising some money uh for 3CR as you know um so please 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 call us on 0394198 8377. That's 0394198377. Or you can donate on the website. Yeah, so you can go to um, 3cr.org.au to donate online. You could also text us. You don't have to call us if you aren't a fan of making phone calls. Um, and, you know, we certainly won't 
put you on air if you don't want to be. Um, but if you do want to SMS your pledge of support, please send us a message. Um, and the number is 0488-809-855. Again, that's 0488-809-855. Awesome. So up next, we've got a funky track. This is a very sensual track. I was introduced to it yesterday. It's called Energy Freestyle by Shrita. That's S-H-R-E-T-A. Here we go. You got so many options, what you know about me? Can't explain the way that you So that was Melbourne-based artist Shrita, S-H-R-E-T-A. And if you liked what you heard, you can follow her on socials at S-H-R-E-T-A-A underscore on most of the social medias. Okay, so next up we have another important campaign covered by 3CR, which is the Raise the Age campaign. Tess and Meg from Done by Law program with this report. On an average night in 2020, there were 798 young people in detention in Australia, almost half of them Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander children. We're speaking to two guests about the Raise the Age campaign. 
a public campaign mounted by a number of organisations throughout Australia to urge governments to raise the age of criminal responsibility. The campaign has been developed by a coalition of legal, medical and social justice organisations, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-owned organisations. We're broadcasting interviews with two guests with extensive experience in the policy and legal sector about children's rights and the potential impact of changing the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14 years. Mena Singh is a current legal director of the Human Rights Law Centre, an independent not-for-profit organisation that promotes human rights through strategic litigation, policy and advocacy campaigns. Mina is a Yori Yoda, an Indian woman with over 20 years' experience in the legal sector. She's held senior roles at a number of organisations, including Victoria Legal Aid and the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Mina is also a current PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne. Our interview with Mina was pre-recorded on Saturday the 5th of June. What is the Raise the Age campaign? Can you speak to us a little bit about what the campaign is seeking to address and achieve? Yeah, so the Raise the Age campaign was launched last year around about the time that the Black Lives Matter movement was really starting to uh, pick up in Australia. Um, and the campaign is aimed at raising awareness uh, of the fact that children as young as 10 years of age can and are being arrested and um uh, charged with offences and put into prison in Australia. And it's to raise awareness of this fact and also that we are very out of step with international standards, um, which has uh, criminal responsibility. Uh, the median standard across countries is 14 years of age. And it's also not just raising awareness, but it's also getting a lot of people from lots of different backgrounds and sectors to support um, the campaign support raising the age on the basis of evidence. So particularly medical and uh, psychological developmental evidence of how kids grow and develop and age, how they make decisions and the, the fact that, you know, up to the age of 14, kids are still developing and still developing those crucial abilities around decision making, about understanding consequence, um, and about, you know, what behaviours they're undertaking. Thanks, Mina. Um, you said that kids as young as 10 are being arrested and charged with offences in Australia. Is that across the country in, in every state and territory or does it vary between states and territories? No, every state and territory has uh, the age of criminal responsibility as 10 years of age. The ACT has committed to raising the age to 14, um, and where, you know, we obviously haven't seen any particular leadership from um, the federal government around this issue. Um, so where, you know, the campaign is working with different states and territories around Australia to, um, to get more and more people understanding why this is so important. You know, what kind of impact does the age of criminal responsibility have on the community at large? Yeah, so, I mean, we're talking about kids aged 10 years old and upwards. Um, so that means kids in grades as low as grade four at primary school and upwards. Um, when you think about 10-year-olds, you're thinking about, um, you know, 
on average, a 10-year-old, you know, 10-year-olds are still losing baby teeth. Like, this is how young we're talking about. Um, and the trauma of arrest, of interactions with police, um, which are a huge imbalance of power, um, which um, can see a child uh, engage with the criminal legal system, see them put into jail. It's hugely traumatic. And um, if left unaddressed, this trauma is really difficult to get over and it can have lifelong impact. And what we know is that the younger a child engages with the criminal legal system, the more likely it is that they will continue to engage as they get older, particularly if they're experiencing prison at a younger age, um, and that they're more likely to offend into their adult years. And we know that prison isn't uh, a place for rehabilitation. Um, and overwhelmingly, if you look at um, pieces of legislation that deal with youth offending, they will state that um, uh, rehabilitation is the ultimate aim for for young people who offend. Prison does the exact opposite. We know that. The evidence is there overwhelmingly. So um, what we're seeing is that, you know, we get um, a revolving door for kids that can start as young as 10, and particularly for kids of disadvantaged backgrounds, kids who might be experiencing a disability, kids who might be living in a house where there's family violence, drug and alcohol abuse, they've suffered other abuses. Um, and we know also that kids who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander are grossly overrepresented. So if you look at um, jurisdictions like the Northern Territory, you see that um, virtually all the children in prison there are Aboriginal. And that's, you know, that turns it into a race issue. Um, not to mention all the children who are in resi care as well and that kind of resi care to the prison pipeline that seems to exist not only in Victoria but I think throughout Australia. So, Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, children who – and, again, we see gross over-representation of Aboriginal children being removed from their families, being put into resi care, being put into non-Aboriginal families so they're disconnected from family and culture. Um, we see them acting out in ways that are totally consistent with the trauma that they're experiencing. We see behaviours that are, you know, are being punished in a completely different way because of the context that they're occurring in. So, you know, let's say you yell at a parent, um, that might be dealt in one way in the home. If you yell or are abusive to a resi care worker, that could be dealt with in a completely different way for a child that leads to criminal a criminal charge and all sorts of ramifications. And, and the, the, the worst part of that is that when a child is removed from their family, that makes the state their guardian, makes the state effectively their parent. So if a child is in that sort of circumstances and they're offending, and if we normally look to the child's circumstances to understand they're offending, well, then when are the states going to be held accountable for that behaving? Uh, what impact do you think that raising the age of criminal responsibility could have for Aboriginal children, families and communities if the campaign's successful? Yeah, um, you know, it would mean that resources could be redirected into things such as greater education supports, greater supports for the family, um, addressing issues of physical and mental health and wellbeing, 
um, supporting kids to stay connected and to stay healthy and strong with their families um, and particularly for Aboriginal kids with culture around them. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of money thrown at, um, at prisons, at our police forces, that is really about throwing money away. Um, we really need to think differently about how we invest appropriately in the things that keep us safe um, and not throw money at the things, at, at issues once things have gone wrong. You know, if we think, you know, if I think about my life and the things that have kept me safe, um, it's things like knowing, having a strong identity and knowing my culture. It's been, you know, uninterrupted education. It's been good health. It's been um, my parents having work. All these things are what keep people safe. Um, and so we, re- we really need a holistic approach and a holistic understanding to um, how the kids come to offend what are some of the concerns um, currently being raised by critics of the campaign and do you think any of those concerns are valid? I think people often look at this issue from the perspective of their own upbringing and think about their own experiences and um, how they understand the world. And so you might see comments like, well, you know, when I was 10, I was old enough to know the difference between right and wrong and, you know, respect my elders and all that sort of, all that sort of, you know, commentary. And that's great. I'm glad people had that experience, but the kids that are being trapped by such a low age of criminal responsibility don't have, um, the experiences that lots of us have. You might be disengaged with school. There might be trauma that they're responding to and living with. And, you know, these are the things that we need to understand about why children offend. Um, also, you know, kids of lower age groups, their offending is very uh, low level. It's not serious offending. It might be things like shop steal. It might be things like... Um, say, uh, property damage, criminal damage types of offences. So often offences that are, are, are very unsophisticated, very thought, you know, process around, you know, other than the mo- in the moment it's something they can do without thinking about the consequences. Um, if a child under an age of responsibility offends uh, in a way that we're concerned about, then we need to think about what are the age-appropriate responses for that child. We need to think about um, what's going on in this child's life, that they're behaving in such a way, um, and how do we address that in a supportive way, in a way that also connects the child with with family and supports and services that address what the issues are going on um, that really leave the, the child feeling like they've got a way forward with how they're feeling and behaving. So that was Mina um, speaking with Tess and Meg from 3CR's Done by Law program, um, one of the many fantastic shows here at 3CR that your donation supports. So give us a call on 0394198377. And joining us now uh, on the line, we've got Laurent. How uh, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hi. Oh, my God. It's... So lovely to be here. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Bestie. How's your morning been? Uh, it's been actually really lovely. I've just been watching RuPaul's Drag Race down under the latest season episode, so I'm just living right. 
That Amazing. sounds like an excellent way to start the day. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> um, any, any good spoilers you can give us on the, the latest episode? Oh, I don't want to spoil too much. Um, but, um, yeah, it's very, it's very shady, I think. <laughs> I've, that's what I've heard about this season, actually, that it's been quite shady and quite controversial. Yeah. So. Yeah. Drag Race Down Under has, has a few qualms, mm. I think, but, um, LeBron, do you want to tell us how much you're going to pledge to support 3CR? Um, yeah, I have a special number in mind. Um, I'm actually Jewish, and the number 18 means life in Judaism. So I think I'm going to donate $18 today, please. That's perfect. Thank oh, you so amazing. Much. Thank you so much. And I, I love no um, the significance of that in your culture. That's so cool. No worries. Yeah, I, I thought it would be a special um, moment and um, opportunity to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Laurent. I hope you have an amazing day. No worries, and I'm sure I'll catch you around soon. <laughs> yes, see you soon. Thank you. See ya. Bye. Bye. So, uh... Yes, that was um, Laurent. That, that was your friend. Jacob. Yeah, that was my um, bestie, Laurent. <laughs> yeah, let's let's give him a round of applause for his uh, for his donation there. Uh, thank you so much, um, Laurent, for joining us. Um, well, back on the show now, uh, we had um, Mina Singh uh, from the Human Rights Law Centre uh, talking to Done by Law. Um, about the raise the age uh, raising the age campaign, um, and now uh, we've got um, Anushka Geronimo, who is the legal director of the Youth Law Program at West Justice and a specialist in children's law, uh, continuing the conversation. Anushka Geronimo, the director of the Youth Law Program at West Justice a community legal centre servicing the western suburbs of Melbourne in the areas of criminal, family and civil law. Anushka has been working in the area of youth crime for over 14 years and prior to her current role was the Program Manager of Youth Crime at Victoria Legal Aid. Anushka is also an accredited specialist in children's law with the Law Institute of Victoria. We spoke to Anushka on Saturday 5th of June about practising in the area of children's law and how best the community can respond to the needs of at-risk children and their families. Could you explain what's meant, I suppose, legally by the concept of the age of criminal responsibility? So in terms of the age of criminal responsibility, what it means um, very simply is the um, age at which somebody can first be charged with an offence. And here in Victoria, it's 10 years old. Um, when we're talking about criminal responsibility, um, we have a concept uh, called Dolly Incapax. Um, would you mind talking us through what that concept means and why it might be relevant for young children who are charged with criminal offences? Yes, yeah, so Dolly Incapax, it's a Latin term, and it remains um, that there is a presumption that a young person who is between the ages of 10 and 13 is incapable of having committed the crime that they are charged with. You know, before I talked about um, the age of criminal responsibility being 10. However, here in Victoria, there is a presumption that 
even if you have been charged with an offence, because you are between the ages of 10 and 13, and because of this presumption, um, you are presumed to be incapable of having committed that crime. And essentially, that's because there is a recognition that a, a young person's um, brain, particularly so young, um, has not sufficiently developed for them to be understand the difference between what is legally right and legally wrong, as opposed to just wrong and right. It's a rebuttable pre uh, presumption, but in practice, this is meant to be a safeguard. So this is uh, meant to, but it doesn't kind of operate as a safeguard in practice. In practice, young people are all, like under 13 and over 10 are charged. And there is no kind of acknowledgement at the outset that this is a young person where Dolly Incapax um, the, the, you know, uh, kind of applies. And so what happens in, in practice is that, um, the defense practitioners on behalf of that young person need to raise the presumption as being kind of, um, applicable. And so that's where it's actually, um, the falls, the onus falls on the child in practice to get the safeguard to actually guard them safely. And the, the challenges, the procedural challenges to have to convince the prosecution to, um, uh, to be satisfied, um, that the pros, um, that the, um, presumption applies is often really difficult and not straightforward. Just on that point, uh, what is needed to satisfy the, the prosecution or the judge or magistrate that the presumption applies? What's, what's the test? Well, the test, um, is in the case of RP and the Queen. The prosecution need to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the child understood that their acts were seriously wrong or gravely wrong and not merely naughty or mischievous. You know, there's a lot of evidence that could be kind of um, explored and relied upon to try and um, understand and prove whether this young person was um, uh, actually um, Dolly Incapax at the time of the alleged offending. The interesting thing is that um, that well, it's not actually interesting. The challenging thing is that this process often takes time. So you might like a usual course of action is to actually get a, a report, a forensic psychological report to actually um, assess the young person to see whether at the time they um, of the offending. And that's a, a very key distinction because it's not at the um, often you're being you're charged and it's not your understanding at the time you're being charged. It's your, your understanding of the offence and whether it was legally wrong at the time you committed it. And often there's a gap. And then add to that gap, there'll be a further gap between the time at which you're charged and then the time at which your charge is being then dealt with. And, and so it's a, it's, that also adds to the challenge of actually um, being able to, um, uh, properly understand whether this, you know, the presumption applies. The usual course of action is for us to um, get a forensic report um, where they, the child is assessed by a forensic psychologist to understand what was going on for them at the time of the offending. Um, however, there are lots of other ways that you could um, uh, equally um, uh, uh, kind of prove or, or disprove or um, kind of explore whether what was going on for them at the time of the offending. The, for example, how they were going at school, um, 
their response to um, their behaviour, um, their response to consequences, their experience of consequences for similar um, behaviour. But again, the the um, the irony of this is that this this safeguard of Dolly and Capax actually isn't safeguarding the young person. And even through this explanation, the point is that um, there's all of the onus falls on the young person to have to prove whether the, or not they were um, capable of committing the crime or not, as opposed to it being on the prosecution. And yeah. one of the worst things about this is that often these young people are on bail whilst we're trying to figure out whether, you know, whilst we're trying to convince the prosecution to exercise their discretion to withdraw mm-hmm. the charges. And then that actually is also quite a, it's a problem, especially considering how the bail laws um, um, operate in Victoria and that um, this safeguard is about, it's a legal safeguard. It's not necessarily um, supporting young people to address the behaviour that got them into um, trouble in the first place and got them charged. And as someone who's very, um, had a lot of experience um, as an advocate and lawyer for children, can you talk to us about what some of the realities are of acting as a lawyer um, in the youth crime space and how it might be different from representing an adult? You know, the most challenging thing about being a lawyer that represents a child charged with a crime is the fact that they are a child. That's the first thing that strikes you, especially when they're this age. You know, I had a... um, uh, a, a client once who was um, charged with theft of motor vehicle, but they actually couldn't see over the steering wheel, so they'd put a um, they were sitting on a, a yellow pages to actually see above the steering wheel. So they are they are small in stature. Um, they they you know when you see them in remand, they're crying. They um, they're not properly clothed. The first thing you think is you want to actually that these are children first. And then what, this is not to diminish the um, the seriousness sometimes of what they may have committed, but I think in terms of solutions and how best to um, ensure that they don't get into similar trouble, I can say unequivocally that the, the criminal justice system is not um, the best solution that we have available. And aside from... Uh, raising the age of criminal responsibility, what what are some of the other solutions? What else can we be doing to support kids in the community who are starting to to get into trouble? Well, I think I think it's important. I'm not sure if many of your listeners know, but the age of criminal responsibility has actually was actually lifted from eight to ten um, in the 90s, 1992, and so the the same framework and supports that are in place for the eight to ten year olds you would say really would be um, the the kind of support systems that you would be looking at to support the 10 to 13 year olds if we um, if Victoria goes you know goes for gold and is brave and raises the age the the best way um, for us as a as a community to be able to support young people to um, uh, stay out of crime would be to look at keeping them in school, um, trying to support them to um, be able to learn in the way that they need to, 
um, to support their learning um, potential and achieve their learning potential rather to ensure that their um, that their health needs are identified and then met. Um, likewise, to support their families to be able to support their kids to stay in school and to support their kids to um, uh, address their health needs because it's it's an in- interesting thing about being a um, a youth crime lawyer. So much of the focus, especially the, the court system, is on that young person and there's very little opportunity to look at the support that the family and their kind of um, uh, the, the young person support system may need to be able to help keep that kid out of trouble. And that may be, for example, you know, and, and I think that's actually a really important um, and key area for us to focus on. And I, again, from experience, think that there's so much benefit that can be um, yielded if we looked at it from that, from the vantage point of, um, as a collective, imagine if we worked together to try and go, and it's not always, we don't have to look at it from um, keeping kids out of the justice system necessarily and, and crime prevention, but we have the support systems in place in Victoria already um, to, you know, a, a child protection system, a, a, an education system, a health system. The idea would be that we would be ensuring that those systems do what they need to do. Um, and also early, like Mick Creedy, for example, talks about um, um, imagine having a GP in all preps across the state so that if a young person, imagine having um, a, a speech therapist or um, or an OT so that um, a young person, if they are kind of starting to demonstrate behavioural issues, um, the is able to be um, assessed and those issues able to be identified early and parents given the, the guidance and the instruction and the support to be able to address those and then imagine if say those kind of people then stayed with them to support them through that journey because it's not a, a one-off time, it's, a, it's um, it often quite a process, um, it can be stressful for parents and so certainly um, ongoing support would be required but that's within our capability, and we've got already such fantastic people, um, and 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 clinicians, and and social workers, and educators um, out there. We we can do this, and I think imagine, for example, if we um, kind of reframed this discussion so that we go, what do teachers need? What support do teachers need to keep kids in school? What support do these parents need to keep the, their kids in school? you'd see a vast difference. That was Anushka Geronimus from West Justice. Um, So that was Tess and Meg from 3CR's Done By Law program with that report on the campaign to raise the age. They spoke with Mina Singh from the Human Rights Law Centre and Anushka Geronimo from the Youth Law Program at West Justice. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Thanks so much for joining us and thank you so much to everyone who's donated to our Radiothon today. A uh, special shout-out to my mum and my bestie, Laron. You go. Oh, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a podcast produced at 3CR Community Radio. It's Radiothon time.
This is when we ask you, the listener, to help power community radio. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station going. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference. It's so easy to donate. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. We rely on the community's support. Donate to keep community-powered podcasts going for another year. Thanks for listening.